Thank you, Daryl. Our team does an awesome job, don't they? Amen. We love you guys. Well, if you've been with us very much, you know, a few weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, we, uh, we celebrated Pastor Jerry Kidd, who normally sits over here with his wife, Sue. We celebrated him. Uh, today, they're in northwest Arkansas and working with a church who's considering replanting, which is awesome because we've got churches who are going, hey, how did you guys do that? And what is that about? And will you come talk to us? And I love that they didn't talk to me. They talked to him. They talked to the boss, right? And so uh, the boss is up in northwest Arkansas this week, and he is uh, sharing some of the beautiful story that God has been writing in us as a church. But if you've been with us, you know that a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated his 80th birthday, and we also talked about some of the mission work that he and Miss Sue have done and how God has used them tremendously uh, as a missionary in Bolivia. Uh, they've worked with missionaries around the world up to this day. He continues to work with missionaries and care for missionaries around the world. And so God is still using his life. And, and you remember, we got to tell some stories of some of his adventures and some of the dangers and challenges that he faced on the mission field, um, many of them life and death. You know, he faced all types of d struggles. And you also know that last week we talked about the fact that anytime you, you present the gospel and anytime you take the message of Jesus to the world, you will face opposition. You will face persecution. You will face trouble. It's kind of a guarantee. And I was just, I was just thinking, you know, this is, uh, this is true of many missionaries. You know, there's countless missionaries, men and women, who uh, have taken the gospel of Jesus to the world. We'll never know their names. We'll never know the country or the place that they served. We'll never know all the information, right? Um, and yet they served faithfully. I was thinking about a few, though, this morning. I was thinking about the one that they call the, the father of modern missions, William Carey. He, uh, he, he lost his son. His wife had mental issues. Uh, no comments, husband's there on that. Uh, his wife had mental issues. He had lots of difficulties in his life. And yet he took the gospel to India when it wasn't a popular thing to do, to take the gospel anywhere. He sort of reintroduced the, even the, the idea of missions to the world. He didn't have his first convert for seven years. No one bought into the message for seven years, and yet he worked for 20 years to translate much of the Bible into several Indian dialects. He said this, he said, great, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Or Hudson Taylor, who spent 50 years working in China, eventually he opened up the door for 800 more missionaries to come into that, that country. He translated the New Testament into the dialect that's used in Shanghai. He said this, he said, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. But it's very clear, it's not just men that have been obedient to the Lord to go on mission. It's been a lot of wonderful women. I think about Amy Carmichael. She struggled with a debilitating illness in her body. She could barely get out of bed, yet she felt called to missions. And so with all that she had, she got out of that bed and she went on mission and she spent the last 55 years of her life in India where she worked to prevent child prostitution. I think about Jim and Elizabeth Elliot who uh, both felt called to Ecuador right around the time they were young kids and they just, they got married and had a baby and uh, they, they moved and they're working with this tribe in, in Ecuador and he's murdered by that tribe with three of his other co-workers but that didn't stop his wife, Elizabeth. She went back to that tribe and continued to minister to that tribe for two and a half years. 
until they knew Jesus. I read an article of the daughter. said, I can just remember, I was a young kid, but I can just remember laughing with the very men who had murdered my father. The list of selfless missionaries and people who've taken the gospel of Jesus to the world is endless. And the cost to do such a thing um, is great. Not unlike what Jesus calls us to as disciples, right? He says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. These missionaries and others, the one thing that I can feel comfort in is knowing that God said he would be with us, didn't he? Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've taught you to, to observe. He said, but I'll, I'll be with you to the ends of the earth. I'll, I'll go with you. He was with all of these missionaries, and he's with us as we take the gospel of Jesus to our world as well. Well, listen, we're going to see in our text this morning in Acts 13, the ministry's hard. Mission is difficult. It's fraught with uh, opposition and, and, and trouble. Sometimes you have to go to places that are almost impossible to reach. Sometimes you have personal struggles with people you're working with. And you have relational issues. There's no telling sometimes even the persecution level. It's hard. And yet what we see Paul and Barnabas do here in Acts 13 is work the plan. <laughs> On the back of your card you have six different uh, statements about the purpose of mission. And the first one is the plan. God has given us a plan to take the gospel of Jesus to the world. And that's what we see Paul and Barnabas doing in Acts 13. If you look with me in verse 13 through 15, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, if you weren't paying attention and you didn't look into this a little deeper, you wouldn't realize the difficulty in these first two verses. We just kind of read it, you know, we go over it and we see, oh, he went from here to there. And you know, we have no context of the difficulty, of the incredible struggle that took place in these first two verses. You need to realize that from Antioch in Syria, which is where they had originated, to Paphos, 215 miles. Right? And they had forged that whole island over 90 miles from the east coast to the west coast. And now they're at Paphos and it's been 215 miles of mission. And now what they're going to do is they're going to sail northward to the coast of Turkey. That's a 160 mile journey. So 215, an additional 160 mile journey by boat. And then once they get there, they have a 12-mile journey on foot to get to Perga. 300 and some odd miles. This is a difficult journey. And what happens? When they get there, they, they have their first casualty of ministry. And the assistant that had been serving them, been helping, John Mark, says, Peace, I'm out. I've had enough. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And he leaves. There's a lot of conjecture about why John Mark would have left, you know. Let me give you a few of those. We, we don't know a lot. Luke, Luke doesn't give us 
the reason John Mark leaves the team. But we do know, Luke has shared with us in, in the book of Acts, that, that John Mark was a rich boy. We know that. We know his mom hosted the church of Jerusalem in her home. She had a courtyard. She had servants. And is it possible that John Mark was tired of roughing it 300 miles? It was like, I'm not going any further. Could it be that, that John Mark had followed his cousin, who was Barnabas, and said, I'll go with my cousin anywhere. This will be an adventure. We're going to go to this island, right? It sounds tropical. Sounds like a wonderful little trip. <laughs> but 300 and some odd miles later, John Mark is like, um, I'm not sure. My cousin's not even in charge anymore. See, up until this point, Luke always refers to this team as uh, Barnabas and Saul. But right around somewhere in this trip, it changes to Paul and Barnabas. And could it be that John Mark said, well, if Barnabas isn't in, in control, if he's not leading this thing, I don't want to do it anymore. And he leaves. Could it be that he takes a look, he's standing in Perga, right? 300 and some odd miles from where they began. And he, he's looking up the mountain because from where they are in Perga to Antioch, Pisidia, is an additional 100-mile journey up a mountain, rough terrain, to 3,600 uh, sea, sea level. And the whole journey is wrought with bandits. It's like, man, can, what else is there? You just keep adding stuff to the journey. And doesn't that seem to be the way life is? You feel like you get a little further. And then what else, Lord, what else are we going to face this week? What's the thing that's going to come this week? What are we going to have to put up with now? We were just starting to, starting to get comfortable. What we got to put up with now? And could it be that John Mark looked up that mountain and said, bandits, 100 miles, not Barnabas, and I think I'm out. Could it be that Paul was sick? Paul tells us in Galatians that when he first came to Galatia, he was sick. He loved the people of Galatia, and they evidently loved him because he says in Galatians, you loved me so well that you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. And a lot of theologians believe it was an issue with his eyes, that they would have given him his eyes. He was kind of alluding to an issue with his eyes. Maybe John Mark said, Paul has no business moving, going forward. Paul's sick. He has no business trying to go up this mountain with bandits and do all this stuff. And maybe John Mark at that point didn't completely understand that in mission you just continue to work the plan. Through illness, through difficulty, and then what he causes is some relational dysfunction. And John Mark leaves the mission. Now, we don't know exactly why he left. But we see in Acts 15 that Paul thought he was a deserter. So Paul was frustrated with John Mark. In fact, we'll see when we get there that this causes sort of a tension between he and Barnabas. And ultimately, he and Barnabas part ways over this topic of John Mark. Ministries not easy. And the reality is, in ministry, you almost never finish with the people you start with. Next uh, January, I'll have spent 30 years in ministry. I can't believe it. It sounds crazy. It started in this room when God called me to, to ministry. And next January will be 30 years. And I can tell you, I've served, I was counting up this morning. I've never counted up. I've served full-time on 11 different church staffs. And I remember we even planted a church in Franklin, Tennessee, and I remember sitting in our living room. We had three couples, and Lori and I, and we were praying about what God wanted us to do in this season of our lives. And one of the guys in our small group, he said, 
let's start a church. And I remember kind of going, I think I'd already been sort of feeling that maybe that's what we should do. But he said, let's start a church. And it kind of felt like confirmation. And I remember kind of going, that's hard, but okay, maybe let's think about this. Let's pray about this. Within 12 months, all six of those people had left. And Lori and I were trying to plant a church. You rarely finish a ministry assignment with the people you start. It's hard. It's difficult. We've had people here at South City. Um, the very first sort of official dinner we had was with Jerry and Sue and, and two other couples and Lori and I, and we went to dinner. And Well, out of those eight people, there's only four still here with us at South City. It's kind of just, it happens. Sometimes it's not dysfunction. Sometimes people leave just because of jobs or other circumstances. Many of you know the Greens. We love them very much. They sit up front here. You haven't seen them in a little while because they bought a house in Greer's Ferry. And they've been there on the weekends. And we miss them, don't we? We love them. But that's not for any weird reason or, you know, dysfunction. They're just enjoying par partial retirement. And, and that's where they are. And I hope they get to come back so we can pray over them, send them out. I think about this couple right here, the Deardorfs. They have been with us. From day one, from the de first day I got here, they were here. They, they, they're quiet, but they serve, they love, they're wonderful people. And I, we're so proud of you, Annie, and what God's done in you as a doctor. She's about to graduate, and uh, she's got a job in Missouri, and they're going to be leaving us in just a few weeks. Amen. Yeah, that's a, oh, praise the Lord. I'm just being honest. Um, yeah, praise God. He knows what he's doing with us. And sometimes people leave for different reasons. It's not always bad. And we will pray over you and send you out and continue to love you and see what God does with you in Columbia, Missouri. So Paul and Barnabas have dealt with some of this uh, relational dysfunction and and, uh, and now they're going to choose to work the plan. we just got to stay on task. We've got to keep moving forward. And they begin to go up the mountain 100 miles to Antioch and Pisidia. Now, Antioch was a, a Roman outpost. It was an important city politically and uh, economically. By the way, Paul knew this. Paul's going to win a city that has influence. Because if he can win a city with influence, maybe that influence can be disseminated around the world. So he specifically, strategically picked cities of influence, and this was one of those. They worked the plan. We talked about it last week. It's called the Pauline cycle, and kind of just, what is the strategy of Paul? And the first part of the strategy is to go into a town and to find other Jews, and Jews are at the synagogue. This is the epicenter of Jewish social and religious culture. And so they, they go there, and they begin to preach. It's kind of, if you, if you will, it's kind of low-hanging fruit. Right? I mean, at least the Jews believe in God. The Jews are where he, he's come from. And the Jews have listened. And if you're raised in the Jewish tradition, you know the prophecies. It even says in our text that in this synagogue, they've read the law and the prophets. They even that day had read from prophecy. And so this is low-hanging fruit. Paul wants to go show them the very prophecies that we've been learning all of our lives have come true in Jesus. He's the Messiah. Can I complete the picture for you? We're not waiting on Messiah anymore. He's come. But it's up to you to choose Messiah. It's up to you to, to know that he is Messiah and to believe in him. 
to give your life to him. And so Paul works this strategy and he, he begins to go to this synagogue. Now, either he's wearing a, something that shows that he could be a rabbi or the word maybe has gotten out that he was trained under the best historical and Jewish leader in Jerusalem, Gamaliel. I don't know. But for whatever reason, the rabbi looked and said, if you guys want to say something, please do encourage our people. And Paul takes this opportunity to share the gospel. And the first thing he does is the second P on your card. He begins to look at the prophecies they've just read. And, and as we look at these scriptures, and we're breaking a, a big text down today, they're, they're chock full of prophecy. So many prophecies. I'm going to try and bring our attention to them all if I can, or as many as I can. Verse 16 says, So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people during uh, people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, a son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and, testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. <laughs> Paul has, has, has set this up. We know about this Messiah. We know that he's coming. We know that he's supposed to come through the line of David. And I'm telling you that that Savior, that Messiah, is Jesus. His message here, and we don't have a whole lot of Paul's messages kind of to the Jewish uh, people like this. But we have a really clear message to the Jews here. It's very, very similar, almost identical to Peter's message at Pentecost. And it's almost identical to Stephen's message at the Sanhedrin. And what they do is very similar. They say, remember who we are. Remember the history of Israel. Do you remember what God has brought us from? And then they say, let's look at prophecy and what we're to expect in a Messiah. That, that's kind of the style of, of this message. And he's also saying, friends, I'm a Jew too. I've been raised in this, in this way. I'm waiting for Messiah. And yet I found him. I've seen him. He makes this jump from prophecy and David's line directly to Jesus. Look with me in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. It says, when your days are fulfilled, speaking of David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. This is... A direct prophecy from the line of David to Messiah. Same with Isaiah 11 and Jeremiah 23. This is very specific, specific uh, messianic prophecy that Paul is kind of alluding to. He's trying to show that, listen, this is who we've been waiting on. His name is Jesus. And then we get to the third P, which is, and I'm going to give you proof. I'm going to show you this proof that Jesus is Messiah. And we read in, in verse 24. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance 
to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy. I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. In other words, we just read them and you didn't understand them. You didn't see it. Fulfilled them by condemning him. In other words, these leaders, by condemning Jesus, have themselves fulfilled prophecy. Verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to, uh, to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, speaking of prophecy, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So there's a lot of information. A lot of stuff going on right here in this one little context of the scripture that we're studying. And so full of prophecies. First of all, he mentions John the Baptist. Right? And, and it's possible that these folks had heard about this crazy character called John the Baptist. I don't know. Maybe he's just telling them about John the Baptist. But John the Baptist was fulfillment of, of prophecy. There was to be an Elijah-type character that would be the forerunner of Messiah in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. And John the Baptist is that character. But John the Baptist, some people thought he was Messiah. He, he clearly said, no, 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 no. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to, to, to remove his sandals. Right? There's one coming after me. And of course, then he baptizes Jesus. And then the Lord shows, even in that moment, this is my son. And makes it clear that Jesus is Messiah. Paul says that the, the founders, the, the leaders in Jerusalem, the rulers, they didn't recognize Jesus as Messiah. And they didn't pay attention to the prophecy because Jesus is here clearly fulfilling Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And the leaders, the rulers, the ones who should know those prophecies, they didn't recognize them. And even in doing so, not recognizing Jesus, they themselves fulfill prophecy. <laughs> Psalm 118 says, Jesus, he's the stone that the builders rejected. They, they didn't recognize, they didn't see him. And even that day when Paul is speaking to this group of people in the synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia. They, they hear the law and the prophets, and they don't even realize that he's, they're speaking of Jesus, Messiah. They condemn an innocent man, Paul says, which, by the way, is another prophecy. And it says, I like this, it says, when they had carried out all that was written of him, in other words, all these prophecies had been written and they, they were coming true, then something happens, a game changer. And he says, something has never happened before. God raised him from the dead. 
By the way, another prophecy fulfilled. He says, not only was he raised from the dead, but people saw him. There are a lot of witnesses, and I, and I love them. You know, we read the Bible, and in our minds, we read it as such a historical document. We, and we, you can't help but just kind of put it back way long ago, right? But Luke is writing this in such a way that, that he's speaking of, of a current situation. Like when he's speaking to what was going on here in this place, Notice what, what he says here. He says, uh, he was seen for many days by many, many witnesses, now witnesses. You hear the, the, the context of that moment is, is current. In other words, Paul was saying to this group of people, there's plenty of witnesses. They're still alive. They're in Jerusalem. Many people that are still alive, they are still witnesses. They're now, right now, still witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Isn't that cool? We don't think of it that way. We don't, we don't picture it that way. But Paul's saying, you want to go to Jerusalem and find somebody who saw Jesus alive? You can. There's such incredible strength in that. He says, this is the Messiah that our fathers, that God promised to our fathers. And now we see full circle prophecy coming true. And we get the benefit of knowing Jesus. Again, he finishes with more prophecy of the resurrection and about the fact that Jesus' body is incorruptible. Talks about the fact that, that David's body will see corruption. It will decay, like mine and yours. Jesus was laid in a tomb and he was resurrected. His body never decay, will never see corruption. Again, prophecy fulfilled. So Paul goes from history of the country and of his people. Then he goes to prophecy. And now he's turning towards the preacher world, right? And he's going to delivery of a message. This is our fourth P this morning. It's the plea. Verse 38, he says, and just feel, feel the passion. Feel the desire for, for him, them to get this. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Verse 41. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul's saying, I, I don't want you to just hear a message. I don't want you to just let one thing go in your ear and out the other one. I want you to know. I want you to truly know. Take this into your heart. Let this change your lives let it be known to you, therefore, right? The therefore thing. What's the purpose in all that's happened? So that you would know the truth. Let it be known to you, brothers. He's trying to make a connection. You're my brothers. I love you. It's the reason I'm here. I want you to know the truth. Let it be known that forgiveness can be known in this Jesus. You can know him. He says, when you believe in this gospel, you believe in this story, in this Savior, there's forgiveness. There's freedom from the law. He's speaking to the Jewish people, which they're a law-keeping people, right? <laughs> and I think this is interesting. So the very first book or letter that Paul writes is the letter to the Galatians, which is this people. Paul is in Galatia. What is the overarching theme of Galatians? It's freedom and grace. Right? 
So what's so cool about that is Acts is sort of the, the macro view of what's happening with Paul. And we get to see even there that he's telling people, be free from the law. He's encouraging people in grace. And yet when you get to the book of Galatians, you get to see the micro understanding of what's happening in that place and what's happening as he's checking back in and establishing them in the faith. And then we have this interesting piece at verse 41 where he's quoting from Habakkuk chapter 1. And he says, look you scoffers, be astounded and perish for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells you. Now listen, what he's saying, he's doing two things here. He's saying, Jesus is Messiah and you need to believe in him to be forgiven. But he's also giving a warning. If you don't believe, there is a coming judgment. Do you see that? We give the same thing every week. We say, would you please believe in Jesus? He gives life everlasting. He forgives you of your sins and you believe in him and follow him. But if you don't, there is a coming judgment. He quotes Habakkuk because Habakkuk was, was telling the people of Israel, God is judging you. Through Babylon, he is going to judge you for not choosing him, for not following him. And may we hear this the same way that Paul intended it, which is choose this way. Choose God's way. Believe. Because if you don't, know that there's a judgment coming. It's serious. He's saying, take this seriously. Don't ignore this. This is about eternal life. Make a decision. Do you know that sometimes people, they listen to a message like this and they either go, yeah, I get that and I'm with you on that. And some people go, I don't know, I'm just, you know, whatever. Do you realize that's a decision too? Indecision is a decision. You walk out of here today, you've either chosen Jesus to be your Savior or you have not. There is no, I'm going to hang out and wait and see what I think. I'm going to test this for a while. No, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today. And as God is pulling and drawing your soul to himself, and guess what? He's the only one who can do that according to John 6, Only the Father can draw someone to himself. And if he's doing that, choose forgiveness. Choose Jesus. And if you don't, friends, can I give you the same warning Paul was giving these brothers? There's a judgment coming. Don't, don't walk out without a decision to follow Christ. Don't think that your indecision is giving you more time because just as I said in the beginning of the message, none of us know if we have another breath. None of us know if we will live another day, another moment. Let today be the day we choose Jesus as our Savior. So after all the hard travel, after the relational issues and dysfunction, after all the hard work, after the preaching, after the persecution, then we get to see the purpose of the mission. Why do they do this? Why do we do this? Why do those missionaries do what they did? There's a purpose. And we're going to see it here. Verse 42, look here. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and, and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urge them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, 
But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Do you see it? You see the purpose of mission? It says even that first day that Paul communicated to, to the synagogue, it says many Jews and many devout men who were following chose to follow Paul and Barnabas, right? Many believed. Many trusted. But I want you to see that there was a mixed response. Some of them said, hey, come back next Sunday we, or next Saturday. We want, you, we want to hear from you. We want, to, we want to hear what we've heard today, but we want to hear more. And so Paul comes back, right? And some of them followed. Some of them believed. But the crowds were so big that the Jews said, well, they don't ever come, come to hear our rabbis speak, right? And then jealousy set in. And because of jealousy, then they began to turn people against Paul and Barnabas' message. They got jealous. Paul and Barnabas make a declaration that's important for a study of the story of the church, I believe, when they say, in verse 46, I'll read it again, it says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Paul says this in Romans 1, right? The gospel should be proclaimed to first the Jew and then the Gentile. This is God's order. This is his design. But he says to the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Again, Paul's saying more prophecy, but he's saying it about himself. Now we turn to the Gentiles. This was originally spoken in Isaiah 49. And Paul's saying, listen, if you don't want this Jesus, I'll take it to people who do. So the Jews are jealous, but the Gentiles are rejoicing. I love that it shows us that he, as soon as he says that, I'll take this to the Gentiles. The Gentiles rejoice. They have hope for salvation. God is doing such a work in them that they, they're awakened to the reality that they need this Jesus. By the way, do you realize that we are those Gentiles? <laughs> Can we just pull back for a minute and be thankful to the missionaries and Paul and Barnabas and others who fulfilled that prophecy that they were a light for us, the Gentiles, that they brought salvation to the ends of the earth, which is you sitting in this building today in Little Rock, Arkansas. That's us. We're the Gentiles who've received this grace. We are the ends of the earth. And now it's our job to finish the task. Friends, this is the purpose of mission. That many would believe in Jesus and be forgiven. That's why, we, that's why we give. When we have an offering, we give. That's why we lay down our dreams and our lives. We say, God, they're not mine anymore. They're yours. That's why when we're sick, we still go. And when tragedy happens, we still say, Lord, you're God of it all. People need to hear your message. We still go. That's when the rough terrain is almost overbearing and we say, God, we'll make a way 
and we'll still go. We'll cross the sea and we'll climb the mountain and we'll speak the truth to people who need to hear you. Because it's the purpose of mission that people would know Jesus as their Savior. It's the reason for mission. It's the why that many would believe. And can I tell you, when we, when we do that, when we're obedient to go, we're going to feel number six on your card, which is a peace that is unbelievable. God is going to give you a peace that is unbelievable. Look with me in verse 50 as we finish up our message. It says, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. That all sounds pretty negative, doesn't it? I would be pretty frustrated, pretty angry. Verse 51, but they shook off the dust of their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, the text said right before this that the word of the Lord had, had begun to spread throughout the region. God was accomplishing what he wanted to through these men and through the salvation of people in Galatia. And later, Paul's going to write his first letter to Galatians and continue to establish the church and these believers in this area. God is doing what he's doing. But don't you know Paul and Barnabas wanted to speak a little bit more? Wanted to make a little bit more difference? Wanted to accomplish a little bit more? But... All of us have seasons of ministry. All of us have moments where we go, God, I've done all I can, and this is all I'm evidently going to be allowed to do. And so Paul and Barnabas followed Jesus' directions. See, in Matthew 10, Jesus gave directions to his disciples about being on mission. He said, when somebody doesn't want you in their home or they don't listen to your message, he said, just shake off your sandals and go on your way. And so Paul and Barnabas are following the directive of Jesus and saying, they shake off their sandals. It's kind of like saying, God, we've done what, what you've called us to do. Decisions are now on them. You're going to call maybe somebody else to this area, but as far as us, we're done. We're shaking the dust off in this moment and stepping away. And their second response is one that is amazing. After they've been run out, listen, they've had uh, Jews inside of the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, drove them out of the district. You wouldn't expect to see verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Right? Like what else do we want in life than to be full of joy and the Holy Spirit? Can I just tell you, listen, if you're sitting in this room and you, you're a Christ follower, you know Jesus as your Savior, can I tell you something? If you know him as your Savior and you are being disobedient to him, you will not have the deep abiding joy God wants to give you. You won't, you won't have it. That joy comes out of obedience. You will not have the filling of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will not fill disobedience. It won't happen. But let me tell you something. If you are in the center of God's will, you're loving him, you're being obedient to him, you will be filled with a joy that you've never experienced. You will be filled with the spirit and be used of God in spite of you. 
but it's so important. I don't see, I don't see in, this, in this story a sense of failure. Oh, I wish we could have done more. I don't see anger. I, I, I don't see uh, uh, frustration or even fear. It says they were full of joy, full of the Holy Spirit. There was such an understanding that God is in control, right? God, you are so in control of my life. You are so in control of this mission. <laughs> we're full of joy and full of the Holy Spirit. Friends, there's no greater joy than being in the presence of God in the center of his obedient will. No greater joy. We will face opposition. We will face rough terrain and difficulty and sickness and sometimes it's going to feel like it's coming from every side. Can we be filled with the spirit and joy even then? I think so. I think Paul and Barnabas give us an example of what it means to face difficulty. I mean, they, there was a reason John Mark left, right? He left. And yet they carried on. They preached the message. They followed the plan. They did exactly what God had called them to do for the purpose of mission, that people might know Jesus as their Savior Friends, as we, as we finish today, as we've been called to know him and love him, that's not all we've been called to. We've been called to make him known. And as we go in that mission, whether it be with our neighbors or our family or people at work or around the world, may the purpose of mission get us up in the morning and push us through the difficulty of struggles and relational dysfunction and problems and finances and issues for the purpose that people might know Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this beautiful opportunity to worship you and learn from you, God. Lord, it's so easy sometimes for our eyes to be settled on the issues, to be so close to the problems, Lord, that that's all we see. To be so close to something, we don't understand how you're going to fix it, how it's going to work. How in the world can we make it through? And yet, we need to be reminded, Lord, of the purpose of mission. It's all about you. It's all about making your truth known to people. God, they, that they may be forgiven. And as we take your gospel, as we live obediently in your will, and in your presence, God, would you give us joy in spite of difficulty? Would you fill us with the Holy Spirit in spite of what we face that's against us? Fill us with something that is not horizontal, something we can get from this earth. Fill us with something that can only give us joy. Fill us with you. Fill us with your spirit. It's otherworldly. We don't understand it. But as we walk in obedience, we experience it. So, Lord, give us courage today. I pray that you give courage to anyone in this room who doesn't know you as their Savior, that as we close here in a minute and we sing this song, that you would lead them down to this altar, maybe for forgiveness. Lord, that they would pray that you would forgive them for a life of disobedience. They want to be filled with joy. 
They want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Lead them, Lord, to this altar or to someone to pray with. And God, would you give us courage and make us bold to take your gospel to wherever it is that you're pursuing us to go. Make us obedient, Lord. That the world may know this beautiful story of Jesus' love and sacrifice for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.